0: Well, if you're turning your Bibles with me now to the book of Genesis, we come to the conclusion of our study on the Anatomy of Temptation from Genesis chapter 3, and our scripture reading will come from Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and our scripture reading will begin in verse 14, and we'll continue on to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The text reads, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to your word. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and mighty things from your precious word. Illumine our minds, grant to us understanding. May your spirit grant to us that which only comes from you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There are a number of scholars or individuals who will look at the first chapters of the book of Genesis. They will downplay their historicity, question their historicity, whether or not it's actually true. They will play it as a story or as a fable with good principles. And in a world That dismisses the first couple of chapters of Genesis as merely stories with people who deny the doctrine of original sin. I had read recently an interview in which the individual was asked something I thought was rather fascinating. In the interview, asked about original sin. The response was, quote, I love the concept of original sin, the idea that we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. When asked why, he explained, Because original sin seems to be such a useful starting point. Imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great. You know, perfect. That's going to lead to intolerance and terrible disappointment when they realize they're not perfect. Whereas imagine a relationship that begins underneath the idea that two people are quite broken, therefore they need forgiveness. When asked to divine broken, he replied, by broken I mean not quite right. So that's why the concept of original sin seems so plausible and applicable and also kind. Also kind. Sorry. First time. That's why it seems so plausible and applicable and also so kind. Because it basically says, look, when you meet someone else, just assume that something major has gone wrong here. Treat everybody you meet as though they were laboring under some really big problem. Basically, that's what they said, unquote. That was interesting. Why? Because it wasn't spoken by some scholar or some Christian. In fact, it was spoken by Alain de Botton. He is a well-known British Atheist. I apologize. You know, it's funny. Satan has his ways, doesn't he? Of all the people who would say such a thing, an atheist says such a thing about the doctrine of original sin, and he recognizes these two things. He recognizes the need between two people who are imperfect for two things. Number one, he recognizes the need for forgiveness, and he recognizes the need for grace. Those two things. Because in the past number of weeks, we've been looking at this passage. This passage in Genesis chapter 3. We've been looking at the temptation, the fall of mankind into sin. And we see that Satan's temptation has caused Eve. He brought about to Eve three things. Number one, he brought about to Eve this temptation to question the goodness of God or the character of God, to question the word of God, and thirdly, to what? Believe in a lie. And that lie was that God was somehow, that God was somehow withholding something that was good from her. And she succumbed to that lie. We saw the process of that temptation, in which Eve saw, Eve saw the fruit. She desired in her heart, which was the first conception of sin. She took it, and then she shared her sin. She shared her sin. She spread her sin. And after Adam and Eve sinned, we looked at the the effects of that sin, in which there was guilt, there was shame, there was fear, and out of that fear, they lied, they hid from God, and they blamed someone else. When Adam was confronted, he blamed who? He blamed God. He also blamed Eve. When Eve was confronted, she blamed the snake. And we do the same thing. When we sin, we blame someone else. We blame our circumstances so that we do not bear the responsibility Seemingly so. And last week we began looking at the curse of sin. The curse of sin, and we began with the curse of sin upon the serpent and upon the man, uh, upon Satan, and upon Eve. Here in this particular passage, there were three blessings that were given in the the early chapters of Genesis the three blessings of God and creation when God proclaimed all of creation good. All that He created was good. He created that which was good. He created that which was good. And we see here that he has three curses now that sin has entered into the world, those things that were cursed, the serpent, the woman, and the man. Despite the fact that disaster had come, plunging mankind into sin, we see God providing hope. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the first semblance of the gospel, what is called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Where the phrase in that particular verse in Genesis 3.15, God provides hope by the statement that says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, even though the head of the serpent or the serpent will bruise him on the heel. And we see that come to play out in the illusion that is there in the victory that Christ has over Satan on the cross. That the apparent victory by Satan was that he would put him on the cross, but the victory, the true victory, lies in the fact that Jesus arose from the dead and he crushed the head of Satan by providing a way of salvation through his own sacrifice for sin. And the curse that we looked at last week upon the serpent was a reminder. The curse upon the serpent that he would slither on the ground was a reminder, number one, that he would, what, be humiliated. This was a picture of Satan's humiliation, a picture of his defeat, that Satan was cursed as well. Not only the serpent, but Satan was cursed because there would be enmity between he and the woman. Not an alliance that Satan might have garnered from the fact that he had turned them, that he had turned them to sin. Not an alliance, but that there would be enmity between them, and ultimately Christ would become the victor. The seed of the woman would become victorious. Then we looked at last week the curse upon the woman. The curse upon the woman fell in two areas that are closest to her life, and those two areas are in the area of her children and her husband, or her family life. There would be pain in childbearing, pains in conflict with her husband, though God again provides hope, the hope that she, as oftentimes is the primary influence in the the lives of her children, be able to point them to the way of salvation and out from under the curse into eternal life. So we turn to the curse now. After the curse on the serpent, the curse on the woman, we turn to the curse on the man in verse 17. We look at that passage today. The passage in verse 17 reads this way. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. This is what happened. Adam took and ate from the tree. And the reason for the curse on the man is because... He disobeyed God by eating from the tree. Adam was not deceived. Adam sinned in an intentional manner, in premeditated first-degree sin. He sinned with his eyes wide open, whereas Eve was deceived. And note, too, the fact of eating fruit from a tree in and of itself isn't the issue. I mean, there's nothing that, that the Scriptures say was particularly unique about this particular fruit. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating fruit or eating it at all. The issue is that he directly disobeyed God and plunged mankind into the morass of sin. It is because he defied God, the God of the universe, by his actions, which God had declared very clearly not to do. That's important because we're so easy to think, isn't it? We're so easily thinking to ourselves, why in the world was that so bad? Why is it so bad? All he did was eat some fruit off of a tree. After all, he didn't do something like hit Eve or do something more egregious in our own mind's eye. And We often think that way. Why? Because we think there are these small sins that don't matter to God or God somehow won't judge us or the consequences are are small in comparison to the other things. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Respectable Sins, he writes, quote, We appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are about the sins of the saints. In fact, we often indulge in what I call the respectable or even acceptable sins without any sense of sin. Our gossip, or unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. We look down our religious noses at sinners, quote-unquote, in society without any sense of a humble, quote, there but for the grace of God go I, unquote, spirit, that's us, isn't it? You, me, we all think unkind things. We all have ungodly reactions. We all think oh, God, honoring thoughts that are not God-honoring because our hearts are so inclined to sin. We ignore those small, petty sins, thinking that they don't matter. But there are sins, I realize, there are sins that are more serious than others. But all sin is rebellion against God. All sin is rebellion against God himself. God calls us to repentance because God is our authority. Ultimately, God is our authority and established all authority. We're to submit to all authority because God has established all authority, and that is the principle of Romans 13, that every person to be subjected underneath the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. and That's why some, when they go overseas to... In the mission field, some Americans go overseas for traveling trips or whatever, and they see people doing things differently or things they may not agree with, and they decide, no, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to live by my own rules because I, I don't think that that's right or whatever. And they refuse to submit to whatever country, whatever culture they're in when they travel and they demand their own way. Another rebellion to the authority of that particular culture or that country just simply because they do things differently. And in taking of the fruit, Adam, in effect, he chose. He chose consciously the way of rebellion. And in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel speaks of this in relationship to Saul, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as the iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion, like witchcraft, insubordination, like idolatry. And Adam sets himself up in his taking of that as the final authority, saying things, I'm going to do things my way. That's sin, the sin of rebellion, the sin of insubordination, that attitude that is there. And the curse is what? Cursed is the ground, it says in verse 17. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the curse on the woman was in the realm of her most common and primary realm of influence, that of her family, husband and children. The curse on the man is in the realm of his primary and most common responsibility, which is his work. The primary area of Adam's responsibility is to provide and that now was not going to be easy at all for him. The ground was cursed. And rather than just getting up and gathering what he wanted to eat, he is going to work and he is going to sweat. He had to clear out those new things called weeds. He had to clear out those new things called thorns and such. He would sweat and labor all of his days. It It wasn't that he didn't have to work before. He did. He had the responsibility to tend to the garden. But it wasn't laborious as it would be now. Now it was going to be hard. Maybe he didn't have moss in his lawn before, now he does. He all sorts of things thatch, weeds, etc. It was going to be hard work until the day that he died to gather food daily for living. That's what many people around the world do. Do you realize that many people around the world spend their day gathering food, getting food for that day's amount to work? They live on very little. They're laborers, they're gatherers, they're farmers. They work the soil, they work, they're agrarian, many cultures. It used to be years ago, I don't know if the statistic is still true, that a billion people in the world lived on less than a dollar a day, and two billion people live underneath two dollars a day. I remember when I was in India teaching, and I would watch, because there would be these day laborers who would make about a dollar a day. And in order to move a large pile of dirt, there were these individuals who, many of them were women. All they would do is they would take a basket. They would take a basket and go over there. It's not like they had a shovel. It's not like they had a backhoe. They would fill this basket with dirt put it on their head, and walk down the street to where it needed to be dumped. Just a whole line of people in order to move some dirt day after day so that they could make money in order to live. Labor each day. My first job I remember in seminary too. It was hard work, riding around in the back of a truck. And we were desperate for money because we didn't have much We would shovel asphalt into the cracks in the parking lot, making about $10 an hour in the heat that was there. It was about 110 degrees outside, and we would ride in that pickup truck, sweating, and they'd give us a drink from a warm garden hose that was out there. And for me, I could last no more than a day, and I just, this wasn't, wasn't, I wasn't going to last. My friend Henry, however, he was a real trooper. He lasted a whole week. Some of you may be worried, too. You think to yourself about the hard work that work is now, and you're looking forward to retirement, maybe in three years, five years, ten years, or whatever it may be. You think, I've worked all of these years, 40, 50, 60 years. You're looking for retirement, well, you think about what Adam faced. Adam lived 930 years. At the age of 80, he was honey, I've only got 850 more years. That's a long time he had to labor, a long time that he would sweat, work the ground for his food. You think about that too for Eve, childbearing, all the pains. I don't know how many years she had to bear children, but it must have been hundreds of years because she had more kids than just, you know, Cain and Abel and Seth. There was going to be pain, and all of this curse brought about all of the suffering that they would face. All of the suffering that they would face as the curse on Adam's work so that it would be toilsome, it would be hard work. The world looks at work, though, in a different manner than Christians do. The world looks at work in a very different way. John MacArthur writes, quote, One of the basic moral virtues that disappears in a culture is work. People once worked hard because of the influence of Scripture and because Scripture is a reflection of the will of God. God is the authority, and the Bible is the revelation of His will as that authority. Work, you see, is a virtue. Work is a moral behavior. People work hard because they believed they were accountable to God, and they were accountable to the revelation of God in Scripture. He writes, In our materialistic self-indulgent society, many people play at their work and work at their play. Others work only to achieve prosperity, success, fame, and early retirement. Such perspectives rob work of any intrinsic value. In essentially valueless work, people display that disdain for the effort itself in doing only enough to avoid being fired, getting away with whatever cheating they can, considering long hours and hard work to be counterproductive, remaining loyal to their opportunity and employer only until they get what they perceive as a better, more lucrative opportunity, and in general, showing utter indifference to the quality of their work." I remember when I worked in IT, we would have a lot of turnover. Turnover in the tech world in which there would be people who would come in, and I'd watch these guys come in. They'd come in. What they do is not uncommon, even today. They would milk the company for all that it was worth, be able to milk all of the certifications they could, and then they would move on to bigger and better opportunities, more lucrative opportunities, building their careers, not seriously caring about the company or the work that they did, only about the benefits that they could receive. That's what he's saying. That's what we see. But the work itself, the work itself has value. The quality of work that we do, the curse itself wasn't upon the fact that now Adam had to work. It was about the fact that his work was now going to be hard and toilsome. But even in that, there was going to be value in his work. When we even look at the Ten Commandments in the, in the, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, we look at the commandments, and it reads on the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we all love that, right? Because that's a day when we're to focus on the Lord. Worship the Lord. We take it. It's not a day that we will, we will practice working, realizing that there are some times that are difficult, but six days you shall labor, verse 9, and do all your work. That's the verse that many times we avoid. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of your Lord, your God. People look at it and they love verse 8, rightly so. Verse 9, though, if they could rewrite that to say six days you shall labor and do all your work internally, they would rather say six days, but if you can do it in two or three, that's even better. Three or four days of Sabbath rest, relaxation. In fact, their mind's eye, maybe even if you don't even have to work, that might be best. What if I win some, some windfall and I don't have to work at all? But such of a view of stop working altogether and having idle hands is not the view of the scriptures, which tells us the intrinsic value of work. For God himself is a worker. God himself could very well have created the world in two days or three days. But in six days, God worked and made the heavens and the earth to provide for us a pattern. And we're talking about different forms of work. We're not just talking about work for income, but we're also talking about work that would be perhaps volunteer work or whatever work it might be, but there is intrinsic value in one's work in being one that is not simply sitting idle, being lazy. Work is not a result of the curse. It is just that work would be much more difficult now. So God curses the serpent. He gives mankind that final victory when he curses the serpent. He curses Eve in the sphere of her family and that of her children and husband. And now Adam's sphere of work is going to be much more difficult, though there is value in work, as the Scriptures delineate for us. But despite all of this, the curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man, God provides hope hope for salvation and hope for a future that Adam believes and we look at that in verse 20 to 24. Now the man called his wife's name Eve. And this is important because she was the mother of all the living. It may seem that this is some innocuous statement, but it's not. Think about it for a second. When you think about how Adam had enjoyed the full fellowship of God, the life of purity, seeing the goodness of God, having having unhindered fellowship with God and peace and joy, a life that is devoid of sin. Then he doubts, he disobeys, he he questions God, he plunges all of mankind in this world into sin, and now he knows death awaits him because this was the consequence that was told of him in the beginning. And if God so chose to, God could very well have taken his life there and then and started all over. He very well could have. Because Adam had rebelled against God, and yet God, in his patience, in his graciousness, and in his mercy, God grants hope to them both by providing them that hope that their seed would come from the woman, Genesis 3.15, and have victory and Adam believed God. Adam believed God, and he displayed this belief in the naming of his wife Eve. Before she was just called woman, all right? In Genesis two twenty three, she shall be called woman. Now he calls her Eve. Why? And that word means life. Think about the significance of that. He knew that he was not going to, at that time then, be executed. He knew that God wasn't going to wipe him and Eve off the face of the earth and just start right all over. He knew he wasn't going to be immediately incinerated. No, he knew Eve would become the mother of all the living. All the living. Now, this particular phrase even wipes out those who have this theory of some gap theory in which there is some pre-Adamic race in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, you know, where there's formlessness and there's void. Some people say, well, maybe there was a, a race of people before Adam and Eve, and they died off, and God started with Adam and Eve, with the creation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's not true, because Eve would become the mother of everyone who lives. And salvation begins there. Salvation always begins with believing God, with believing the word of God as it's declared, with believing what God says. It says that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God imputed righteousness to Abraham because why? Abraham believed God. Secondly, salvation begins with an atonement for sin, with some type of atonement for sin. Before, they were wearing fig leaves, and now, what does it say? God gives them garments of skin, and he clothes them. Where do the skins come from? Well, they came from animals. They came from animals. God himself provides for them the very first sacrifice, the shedding of blood, The shedding of blood as a precursor to that which would follow the the full sacrifice of Christ. But God would provide. Just like God provided a ram for Abraham when he was about to sacrifice Isaac. God provided for them the very first death that would occur in the scriptures of this earthly world. And that of an animal. That of an animal in giving his blood. Not only do we see Adam's belief, not only do we see God's provision for sin, but we see God's, thirdly, security for salvation. God's security for salvation, verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There in the garden was the tree of life. It was the tree of life, and if man should take and eat, he would live forever. (laughs) And now you might think, "Well, well, what's wrong with that? That's a good thing, isn't it? Having eternal life. Now, it wouldn't be the same, though, because there is a major problem. There is a major problem in that you may think this would be the same, but it is not. This eternal life would be an eternal life in bondage to a body that has been affected by sin. Living eternally, and a sinful he is a sinful human being with all of its frailties, its temptations, its faults for all of eternity. If he took and he ate from that tree, he would live forever, battling with his own sin. Struggling with sin forever, struggling with temptation forever. Struggling with all the maladies that you might face. Imagine that. Having arthritis forever bad eyesight forever, allergies forever. God in his grace protected them from themselves at taking again from the tree that might have them live forever in their sinful state. And so he secured that hope, that hope of salvation that would come, what true freedom is, freedom of their souls in this life, and the promise of a glorified body in eternal life with God in heaven. Because God's mercy is great, and he protected them from themselves. You ever pray that? That God would protect you from your own sinful self? We've all been affected by Adam's sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Some people ask, why why was Adam responsible for the fall of mankind and not Eve? After all, wasn't it Eve who had eaten first from the tree? The answer is because of Adam's headship. Because of Adam's headship. He is seen by God as the one who is the leader, the one who is responsible, the one who is culpable. It would be as if parents who left their children to play... They were going out of the house or whatever, and they tell the older child, you're to look after your younger brother. You're to look after your younger sister. And that younger sister, that younger brother, whoever, decides they're going to pull the eggs out of the refrigerator and throw them around in the living room. And the parents return. It wouldn't be unfathomable for them to confront the older child to say, what? is going on. We told you to look out after your younger sister. We told you to look out for your younger brother. Now look what they did. Who do they hold responsible? They hold responsible that older child who had the responsibility to look after their younger sibling. And in a similar manner, in some analogous form, Adam is seen as the one who is responsible. That is how Romans 5 presents it. He is seen as the one who is responsible for permitting that to come into the world. And this is understood in what is theologically called federal headship, federal headship. The Bible Knowledge Commentary reads, The federal headship view considers Adam, the first man, as the representative of the human race that generated from him. As the representative of all humans, Adam's act of sin was considered by God to be the act of all people And his penalty of death was judicially made the penalty of everyone. Because Adam sinned, we are seen as being also penalized judicially. That is what federal headship means. And for those who think that's not fair, well, God has granted to us the beauty of his plan. And not only that sin came through one man, But salvation, too, would be granted to all who would repent of their sins through one man. That man would be Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And that through all who would come to the foot of the cross and repent of their sin, receiving salvation because of their faith that is placed upon Jesus, who died and rose again, believing that he suffered so that they might be saved. He suffered in their place as a substitutionary atonement. Salvation would come to them through one man because they themselves could never live a perfect life. Jesus died so that we could have it ascribed to us, his righteousness, his perfection in righteousness. That is by the grace of God. So in spite of the power of sin, what has come upon the world and the plans of Satan who thought that perhaps he had turned Adam and Eve, God God grants grace. He grants hope. He grants hope in Genesis 3.15 to the woman to say, through your seed there will be a seed that will crush the head of Satan. He grants hope and he preserves even in the man here who the man believes God. He names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living, knowing that there would perhaps be a future preserves them from themselves in taking from the fruit of the tree of life so they might have an eternal life that is far beyond this world, the hope of a glorified body, the hope of eternal life. And when we look at this passage in Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety, in its whole about God and what mankind did to plunge the entire world, human race into sin, we see God's grace even in that. He calls out to the man. He didn't have to call out to them. He called him to accountability to ask him what he has done. God could have wiped them out and started all over, but he gives them an opportunity, and he gives them a pathway through the grace of God. And even as we look into our own lives at how sin has affected us and our past, we think to ourselves perhaps, how has my sin brought me to where I am? And yet, how has God been so very gracious to me to grant to me the hope of salvation such that we might be able to rejoice and say how good God is despite my sin. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give you thanks for your graciousness towards us. And Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord. May we guard our eyes, And we guard our heart, that we might not see and desire and take the sinning against you. We pray, Father, that you would protect us from our own sinful ways and that you would grant to us much grace as we desire, O Father, to live rightly before you. And we give you thanks, Lord, as I've often thought. My sin, O the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. In Jesus' name.